Eduardo lived in a small to medium-sized town in El Salvador. He had a good childhood. That is, until he got to his teens. Then the local gang decided to recruit Eduardo. Eduardo knew what this meant. It meant extorting people, violence, and he knew that this gang had been involved in several murders in the town. He could not imagine being part of this. He just couldn't join the gang. At first, he tried to hold the gang off by telling them he had to think about it and then trying to avoid them. But it was a small town, and they couldn't be avoided. One day, his family got up and went to the small store that they ran. It had been broken into. Nothing was taken, but shelves were knocked over, and the whole place had been ransacked. A few weeks later, the gang gathered outside on the street and shot several shots into the roof of their house, while Eduardo and his family cowered under the kitchen table. Then one day, he was riding his bike down the street, and several gang members came out and started chasing him. He knew what would happen if they caught him. He rode as fast as he could, and one of the gang members took several shots at him, one going right past his head. Eduardo knew that he wouldn't be around long if he stayed in the town, but joining the gang was unthinkable. He made the long, arduous trip to the U.S. and applied for asylum. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 42, Making Prejudice Popular Again. During the decades following the Civil War, the U.S. experienced a period of economic expansion in which industrialists made vast fortunes in industries such as railroads, steel, banking, and mining. During this Gilded Age, it's widely recognized that aggressive businessmen made vast fortunes. Men like Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and John D. Rockefeller are now referred to as robber barons. One result was a vast wealth gap in the U.S., which caused massive problems. Political corruption, poverty, urban slums, and health problems all became major issues. The problems of the Gilded Age led, predictably, to what's known as the Progressive Era, as we've discussed before. During the Progressive Era, leaders such as Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Williams Jennings Bryan fought to break up monopolies and reduce the wealth gap that had defined the Gilded Age. We saw that the Progressives made great strides in this, and by the end of the era, Reforms had been instituted, including a progressive income tax code that largely eliminated the extreme wealth gap that had existed in America. It became widely accepted economic theory thereafter that such extreme economic disparity between a small group of ultra-rich and a vast proportion of the population living in extreme poverty was not healthy for the American economy. 
The 20th century confirmed this when, for the first time in history, we had a middle class of over 60%. The result, as every student of economics knows, was that money in the hands of the middle class begets more national wealth. We talked about the magic of a middle class economy in episode 37. To review, it works like this. The middle class has enough money to live comfortably, saving what they hope will be enough to retire on. But most of what they earn, they spend. The poor will spend most of what they have on food and housing. They will have little to spend on anything else. And almost nothing to save. The ultra-rich will spend some money on luxury goods, of course, but they'll save most of what they have. The middle class, on the other hand, has money left over after they spend money on housing and food. Therefore, they spend money on cars, vacations, sporting goods, boats, clothing, dining out, and a thousand other things, all of which require people to manufacture, serve, entertain, and fill jobs of every other sort, which in turn employs more people who enter the middle class, who spend money on the same kinds of goods and services, which employs more people who in turn enter the middle class, all in a virtuous cycle that leads to a continually increasing standard of living. There was no dispute about it. This virtuous cycle of middle-class earning and spending created ever-wealthier middle-class generations from the progressive era through the early 1970s. It was an amazing era of prosperity and middle-class wealth creation. Each generation, the Great Depression aside, not only had a better standard of living than their parents, but significantly better, especially during the post-war decades. From the 1940s through 1973, the incomes of the poor, middle class, and rich rose in roughly equal proportions. That is, poor and middle class incomes rose by the same percentage as the incomes of the rich. Then, in 1980, this equal income growth trend began to reverse. Beginning in the 80s, the incomes of the poor and middle class began to rise only very minimally, even anemically, while the incomes of the rich and very rich have soared. What happened? The answer neoconservatives have given to this is globalism and the rise of using foreign manufacturing to import manufactured goods into the U.S., rather than paying U.S. workers to manufacture them here. And the neoconservatives are not entirely incorrect in this. Yet if the answer were truly globalism, the lines would have begun to diverge in the 1990s when the trend toward globalization took off, not in the 1980s as they in fact did. Globalism and offshoring manufacturing jobs to other countries has not helped the cause of working people, yet it's not the sole or even the primary cause of America's great income gap and the decline in the middle class. Reagan told us that if we gave tax cuts to the very wealthy, they would make more money, and as they made more money, they would have more capital to invest in their businesses and would create more jobs. This, of course, ignores the fact that, for a hundred years, America has always had plenty of money for entrepreneurs to invest. Trickle-down was, of course, a miserable failure. 
All Reagan's tax cuts did was to create a wealthier class of super-rich and to begin the decline of the middle class. It was the beginning of trickle-up, not trickle-down. But Reagan took a page from the ultra-right leaders of the 20th century and created a great enemy. It was the Cold War, and he told Americans that they were menaced by the Soviet Union, who was a great evil empire. Voters were afraid of Reagan's evil empire, but it was okay. Reagan was a strong leader. He was their protector. Once an electorate is afraid, they'll follow wherever their leader takes them. After Reagan, Republicans elected George Bush Sr. This was a mistake for hardcore neoconservatives. He was not sufficiently neoconservative to sustain a fearful electorate. The world did, in fact, face a dangerous dictator during his term. Bush's response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait? To invade Kuwait and expel the Iraqi forces that had taken over the country. Having done so, Bush stopped at the Iraqi border. He had a boogeyman, an evil dictator that could be used to scare the public, one which he could teach Americans to hate. Instead, Bush listened to his advisors who told him that, as desirable as it was to get rid of Saddam Hussein, invading Iraq would bog the U.S. down in a long, protracted war. Bush decided this was a bad thing and moved on to other issues of greater importance to the U.S. This caused him one more significant problem. With no great enemy for the people to fear and hate, they didn't look to Bush as a savior figure and didn't form the kind of bond with him that they had with Reagan. Bush made one more mistake from a neoconservative standpoint, a fatal mistake. Bush looked at the Reagan tax cuts and saw that they led to a huge increase in the federal deficit. During his term in office, Reagan's budgets ballooned the deficit to two and a half times what it was when he entered office. Not being a neoconservative at heart, Bush thought that that was a bad thing, realizing that if America didn't stop Reagan's deficit spending, the long-term result would be disastrous for the U.S. So Bush raised taxes to prevent a slide into ever-larger deficits. This saved a huge slide into devastating national debt. But by now, neoconservatives had been sold on the benefits of cutting the taxes of the ultra-rich and weren't worried about old-school economic theories like the dangers of large deficits. It cost him his presidency. He wouldn't be re-elected to a second term. It's a mistake his son wouldn't make. Gone were the days of their greatest generation parents, in which conservatives worked hard and paid for what they used. These younger Republicans had seen their parents' work ethic accomplish great things, like creating the interstate highway system. This was an extraordinarily expensive project, and the Republican president and a conservative Congress did what conservatives had always done. They raised taxes and paid for an extraordinary expenditure they thought would be in the best interests of the country. Reagan destroyed the traditional conservative pay-for-your-own-spending ethic. George Bush Sr. was the last Republican president we would see attempting to pay for his own spending. 
Reagan had taught neoconservatives that it was better if future generations paid for their profligate spending, and they loved it. Before we go on, a look at the word neoconservative, or neocon. If you look up the definition of neoconservative, you'll probably find a definition that talks about believing in an interventionist foreign policy and free market capitalism. There might be something there about traditional values. This is clearly a definition sold by neoconservatives themselves, but we don't get to define ourselves. We are defined by what we do. Neoconservatives have shown a belief in ever-expanding the federal budget for favored programs such as defense and for cutting taxes. Always cutting taxes, as we've noted, primarily for the ultra-rich, no matter how large the federal deficit is. Enough of that. So where are we? We've made it to the 21st century and our march to now, and we've seen the pendulum swing from laissez-faire unregulated capitalism in the Gilded Age to progressivism and FDR liberalism during the Great Depression to conservatism during World War II and the post-war years to liberalism in the 1960s and 70s and to neoconservatism with the advent of the Reagan Revolution in 1980. I've been using the metaphor of a pendulum, but that's a little misleading, as it implies a movement from one position to its opposite and back again to the same position. As we've seen, though, these swings roughly orbit around the same poles, but each of these historical periods have their own very unique flavor. Our current flavor, brought to us by Ronald Reagan, at its core, includes a deep belief in cutting taxes, a lack of concern about the size of the federal deficit, and the need for a boogeyman that believers can fear and hate. For Reagan, it was the evil empire of the Soviet Union. George Bush Sr. didn't create a boogeyman and didn't get a second term in office. George Bush Jr.'s boogeyman was Saddam Hussein, who he told us was a grave and gathering threat with his, quote, weapons of mass destruction, that we were all assured that he had. Of course he had none, but by the time this was proven, we were well into the Iraq War, and he was our confirmed enemy, so it really didn't matter then. But who would Trump's boogeyman be? The Cold War was over. Trump was an isolationist. He wasn't a war hawk and didn't want to get involved in a foreign war like George Bush Jr. Who then, to blame as the great threat to America? Let's see. Where would there be a smoldering resentment against a helpless minority that could be stoked into rage? Oh yeah, immigrants. There's a time-honored minority that rightist regimes have traditionally used to stoke the rage of their followers. But wait, there's more. Here in the U.S., we've had large numbers of undocumented immigrants coming across the country's southern border for more than a generation now. Not only immigrants, but undocumented immigrants. Jackpot. But wait, there's more. Since they're undocumented, let's call them illegal immigrants. We don't call the class of drivers who drive without license illegal drivers. Or children who go to school without state-mandated vaccines illegal children. In fact, there's no class of people that we refer to as illegal people. But if we can brand 
this entire class of immigrants into the U.S. as illegal rather than undocumented or unauthorized, that'll go far towards stoking the kind of fear and hate that we're looking for. After all, who wants to live with illegal humans in their midst? Trump wouldn't make the same mistake George Bush Sr. made. Undocumented immigrants were there in large numbers. They were largely defenseless. By their nature, they weren't organized and couldn't stand and speak up for themselves when accusations were made, such as, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, and they're rapists. Voila, the perfect outgroup to vilify and inspire Americans to hate. Since the civil rights era, it hasn't been possible to cast a class of persons as our natural outgroup and show them open prejudice, at least until Trump was brave enough to openly target the undocumented population in this country. So how did America come to have such a large undocumented population? Let's take a moment to see how this came about. Unlawful immigration into the U.S. was quite low in the 1960s but it had begun to pick up by 1970 due to poor country conditions, mostly in Mexico, and relaxed border policies at the time. At the time, there was not a sufficient outcry against the increased inflow of Latinos into the U.S., and there were agricultural interests, canners, meat processors, seafood processors, and other employers that benefited from a dependable workforce willing to work for low wages. As unlawful border crossings began to skyrocket in the 1980s, immigration policy was kind of like the weather. Everyone talked about it, but nobody did anything about it. It just never raised to the level of a national concern sufficient to motivate Congress to allocate the money that would have been necessary to stop the flow of undocumented workers across our southern border. But the trickle that had been coming in in the 1960s had turned into a torrent by the 1980s. There were perhaps between two and 4,000 apprehensions of those trying to cross our southern border unlawfully in the early 1960s. Between 1980 and 2000, this number averaged well over 1 million per year. Some years, it was over 1.5 million. Still, no significant measures were taken to stop it. That is, other than Reagan signing a bill granting those who had lived in the U.S. for several years amnesty. I heard Reagan on the radio at the time saying that this was going to fix the immigration problem. I wondered when I heard it. How does he think that granting amnesty is going to stop people from coming into the U.S.? It was certainly the humane thing to do, and I was glad he did it. I remember talking to a friend who went up in a helicopter at the border at dusk. He said that you could see a sea of people massed on the Mexican border for miles. As dusk turned into night, you could see the sea of people advancing to the border. Agents on the U.S. side of the border apprehended as many as they could, but they were completely overwhelmed. There was nothing they could do. They didn't have sufficient resources. and so. Massive numbers of undocumented immigrants cross into our southern border every night. Today, with increased resources having been directed at our border with Mexico, this number of unlawful crossings has generally been way down in recent years. The bigger issue now 
is what do we do with those who are in our country with no documentation? With all of the unchecked immigration throughout the last few decades, the number of those living in the U.S. without documentation is somewhere between 10 and 12 million people, depending on whose numbers you want to believe. Some say, deport them all. This is just silly. There's no possible way we can find, process, and deport that many people. That's not necessary or beneficial. It's not even what those in power on the far right want. They want a population here in the U.S. to be their boogeyman. It's just not politically acceptable to be prejudiced against African Americans or Latinos anymore. Though we experienced a resurgence of this kind of racial hate during the Trump years, it was still a minority of far-right extremists. For those who aren't on the extremes, Trump has made it acceptable to fear and to hate someone not for the color of their skin, but for their legal status. And many on the right have embraced Trump's call, not to wish that we can find a solution to their legal situation, but to fear and hate them for their status. Yes, thanks to Trump, prejudice is once again back in style. So what did the Trump administration do? Was it seriously all that tough on those who have immigrated to the U.S. without legal documentation? Let's take a moment to look at that. Remember that there's no possible way that the government can round up even a significant portion of the estimated 10 million people in the U.S. without documentation and deport them back to their home countries. Every new administration faces this question and what they're going to do about it. Obama was very aggressive in his deportation of unauthorized immigrants. He deported more than any president before him. Given the limited resources any president faces, who did he decide to deport? He deported immigrants who had been convicted of crimes. Even though I was an immigration attorney, this made sense to me, too. We can only deport so many people given our limited resources. So let's deport those who've shown themselves to be a danger in some way to our society. Good enough. Then what changes did Trump make? He made several. And we'll get into some of them. But he made one that immediately changed life for all of the millions of unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. He continued to choose to deport criminals. But one of the first changes he made was to announce that not only would those unauthorized aliens who have criminal histories be deported, along with certain other groups he targeted, but if ICE, that is Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers, should find hardworking, law-abiding, unauthorized immigrants in the course of their duties, they were to arrest them and detain them to be deported as well. Remember that every law-abiding, unauthorized immigrant we deport is one more criminal immigrant that we cannot deport, given our limited resources. Let's go back to Eduardo at the beginning of this episode. His story is a mashup of several stories that I heard during my tenure as an immigration attorney, and not at all the worst of the stories I heard by a long shot. But take Eduardo and multiply his story by about 10 million. These are people who are often given the choice of remaining in their home countries and facing violence, ongoing abuse, or worse, and attempting to immigrate. So, they attempt to immigrate. They come to the U.S., 
Now they've been here 20 or 30 years. They've raised children who, being born in the U.S., are U.S. citizens, and they've always kept out of trouble, and they've worked very hard. Now they're told that if there's a raid wherever they are, and they can't show documentation to the ICE officer who detains them, they're going to be deported. Their entire lives and families are here in the U.S. So many have nothing left in their country of origin. With this one order, Trump spread a deep, bone-chilling fear to 10 million people. During the Trump years, I've heard that fear from so many people. But there are so many other things that Trump ordered in his four years as president. Let's say that a woman had suffered terrible domestic violence from her alcoholic husband. Her family wouldn't or couldn't help her, and she had no one to turn to. Not an unusual case at all in some Latin American countries. She takes the only option she sees and immigrates to the U.S. and applies for asylum. Before Trump, she had a fighting chance of winning her case and gaining asylum. Not a slam dunk, but a decent fighting chance. After Trump, her chances of obtaining asylum were slim to none. But that was only the beginning. Trump penalized sanctuary cities, though admittedly that term was never really defined by denying cities he felt didn't sufficiently cooperate with ICE by withholding grant money to them. He significantly tightened the rules on who would be granted immigration benefits based on whether the administration felt that they would become a public charge, that is, go on some kind of governmental relief. He built a new border wall, though it was significantly less than he promised, only 80 miles of new walls. He instituted his Muslim ban. He attempted to end the DACA program, allowing immigrants who had been brought into the U.S. as children to not have to worry about being deported. He severely restricted the number of refugees the U.S. would admit. He sent troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. He proposed ending birthright citizenship. And, of course, he instituted a policy of separating migrant children from their parents when they crossed the border, promptly losing some of them in the ensuing chaos, causing extended delays in reuniting them with their parents. There's so much more that happened in the immigration arena during the Trump administration, but this short summary is sufficient for our purposes. The point is not what Trump did, but that he, through his repeated tweets and speeches, calling them rapists and criminals, made them an outgroup that was safe for Americans to hate. Decades of civil rights battles had made it unacceptable for Americans to carry on the once ubiquitous prejudice that many Americans had held against blacks and those of other nationalities. But thanks to Trump, it was safe to hate and fear those who live among us who have no legal status. So the U.S. is facing a choice, whether to continue a course of fear and exclusion against immigrants or to adopt a path of care and compassion. The rapidity of the country's shift to the anti-immigrant zeitgeist during the Trump years 
may have seemed surprisingly fast for casual observers of contemporary politics, but I doubt it was for many students of history. To evaluate a country's swing toward nationalism, as just happened in the U.S., take a look at the historical drivers behind the movement. First, the leader's motivation. The national leader, first and foremost, is driven by his or her lust for power and by a desire to be adored by his or her followers. These are the nationalist leader's prime motivations, but nationalism comes in a package that includes xenophobia or fear of outsiders, fear and ostracism of internal groups, and overly emotional histrionic reaction to opposing political groups inside the country. This last one is of great use to the aspiring nationalist leader, as it can be leveraged into an automatic fear on the part of the leader's followers of anyone who doesn't follow the nationalist creed and their chosen leader. What does all this translate into on the part of those who follow the nationalist leader? On one level, it's pretty simple. The nationalist is appealing to the same primal emotions we've been dealing with since we watched Adam and Eve's band square off against the opposing hominid band at the watering hole. The nationalist leader is escalating the fear of outsiders. What we've identified is the prime historical driver. Trump did a great job of appealing to this base-level driver. He has used social media extensively as a tool to build up fears and hatred against immigrants and make them into the feared-out group. In one tweet, Trump threatened to temporarily suspend all immigration into the U.S. Why is this irrational fear of undocumented immigrants important to us in our search for the reason behind our current climate malaise? That is, our failure to address climate change as the threat that it truly poses to us? The ongoing drumbeat of anti-immigrant rhetoric that comes, not just from Trump, but from the entire far right, is a key part of the nationalist zeitgeist that's now centered around Trump, but could easily be transferred to another nationalist leader should he fall out of favor among the far right crowd. If we take a step back and look at the immigrants in this country, who are they and why are they here? Most of them are people who have been here for, say, 10, 20 years or more. They've worked very hard. They have no social safety net to fall back on, so they've worked hard and lived carefully and frugally. Perhaps you've known one or more of them. Perhaps you've learned what so many thousands of Americans who've hired them or worked with them know. They're overwhelmingly honest, kind, caring people. They commit crimes at a significantly lower level than U.S. citizens do. It's just impossible to vilify them as drug dealers and rapists unless you've never come into contact with them. What about Eduardo? Is he likely to get asylum? Without an attorney, the answer is almost surely no. With an attorney? Still, probably not. Bill Barr and especially Jeff Sessions were very successful in changing the law to make it more difficult for people like Eduardo to be granted asylum. And what will happen to him and all the thousands of other Eduardos 
when they are denied asylum and sent back to their countries? The answer can be hard to imagine. But if we get involved, if we care, if we learn what genuine, caring, and hardworking people these are, if we all take the time to get to know them and spread the word that these are extraordinary people who just want a chance to have an ordinary life and to raise children in a country where they won't be victimized by brutal gangs, if we can take just one step toward taking this out-group and welcoming them as our in-group, then we will have taken a major step in destroying the edifice of the nationalist fear that has supported our current climate malaise. Good luck. Your read this week is Enrique's Journey by Sonia Nazario. Think the journey to the U.S. is an easy one for the immigrants we've been talking about? Sonia Nazario is a journalist who closely followed one immigrant's journey. It's well worth the read. Enjoy. See you next week.